0: Jessa duggar While loses her baby due to a miscarriage, resulting in the pro-abortion side claiming that she actually had an abortion and calling her a hypocrite and all that. We discuss whether or not it's the loving to affirm sin, and we discuss perseverance in our series on the Ordo Salutis. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the God of Freedom Show. This show is sponsored by Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. So if you always want to start a podcast but didn't know where to begin, Anchor is for you. Anchor is very simple to use, and it is also free. All you do is record the audio from your phone, the computer, laptop, or wherever, edit it, and then post it. You can monetize it with sponsorships or donation buttons, and you can distribute sites like a podcast, Spotify, or a Podcasts. Check it out on anchor.fm or download the app. Again, it's anchor.fm. Or download the app. Alright, so we are back for another episode of the God of Frame show. So uh, we have a lot to get to in this episode. So let's go to jump right into it. So the story we're going to cover first is the story over of Jessa Duggar Seawald. Um, she's in fact one of the Duggar kids, one out of 19 of them. Is it 19 or 20? I think, yeah, 19 kids for 90 kids again and all that, you know, the Duggar family. And, um, she's now, you know, you know, she's grown up. She has a family of her own. She's married and she has already had a couple of kids, right uh, already. And, um, they were expecting their their child. Um, I think it's sometime this year, actually. But sadly, um, her baby died due to a miscarriage over, I think, I guess Christmas break. um, because when she, um, as we get to a little bit, she had, to, she had to get, so about 11 weeks into her pregnancy, she had to get a procedure done, which is called a, a DNC, which is a proced- procedure designed to, to remove, like, a miscarried baby, like, if, you, if a woman miscarries their uh, child in the womb, and they're unable to actually, you know, deliver on their own, pass, it, pass the baby on their own. They usually do a DNC operation in order to remove the baby from the womb, and it's not used. This procedure is not only used for a DNC; it's also used for things like, um, say, either a woman gives birth to her baby. Um, sometimes it's left over placenta, which is that when, for those who don't know, all the signs behind this, you know, when the water. When the woman's water breaks, that is placenta that's the placenta basically bursting and allowing the baby actually move into the birth canal. And so sometimes a woman has to get this operation done to remove any excess placenta, because leaving that in there can cause a really bad infection, diseases, and all that. And so, um, she's again she's about eleven weeks on, um eleven weeks in when her baby died, and when she got um this operation her baby was already um about three weeks um uh had been dead for three weeks her the, the baby's heart he or her i don't know what the gender was um but her baby baby hearts had, had stopped about three three weeks before the dnc uh operation it is a horrible horrible tragic situation Again, I mean, there's nothing more tragic than a parent losing her child, regardless of whether or not it's been born or not, baby's been born or not. It's a horrible tragedy for a parent to lose a child. So we as believers, as her, you know, she is a Christian. So we, so as followers of Christ, she is our sister in Christ. So we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to, as, as her brother and sisters in Christ, we need to pray for her during this time. Pray for her healing um, in the heart and spiritually, mentally, physically during this time. Pray that she'll, you know, she continues to keep the faith, stand firm in the faith, continue to seek God and all that, and pray for, you know, her husband and other children too, because I'm sure they're going through a tough time dealing with this as well, so just Pray that God will, God will be with them, comfort them, and all that. <laughs> because again, this is a horrible, tragic, tragic situation. And um, you know, after the after this happened, um, I guess it was a little before. It's a little, I guess, a couple weeks or so after she had the operation, she actually revealed it on uh YouTube, on a YouTube video, kind of telling her story of what happened. Her baby, what happened to her baby? An operation that she had to get done, and all that, and and many, of course, on the pro-life side, were offering her prayers, you know, reaching out to her for support, and you know, just you know, just sending them, sending her their condolences, and just and offering up, you know, any support they can they can uh, muster up at all, and this is the. This is a great... Just This really shows a true godly nature of the pro-life movement. I know not everybody on the pro-life side is um, Christian. Or is even a religious uh, person. But there is some sort of this kind of... It's a godly nature within the pro-life movement. There's like this... This light, the light, of, the light of Christ is just illuminates in the pro life movement. It, it just, it simply does. I mean, I went um back in January. I went to the Georgia Martial Life, and again, it's just it's something so kind of just powerful by being there. I mean, we worship, worship, and prayer and song and all that. So it really the pro life movement, regardless of regardless of the fact that not everybody's religious, the pro life movement is a godly entity. It's being led by God to really to end abortion, to go after this this dark, dark, this evil kind of operation that's being done to many babies. It's been done for many years to many babies. And then you contrast that, the pro-life movement, with the pro-abortion side and how they have reacted to this. And this is the truly, this is where the disgusting part of the story really starts. Excuse me. So instead of giving her their condolences, you know, like good, decent people, like any decent person would do, they decided to ridicule her. They threw they threw insults at her. They're calling her a hypocrite. They're calling her a fake Christian for having a miscarriage. They're calling her a hypocrite and a fake Christian for having a miscarriage. You heard that right. She had a miscarriage. I want to make this perfectly clear. She had. A miscarriage, meaning her baby died of natural causes. Her baby died <laughs> to, due to no fault of her own. Um, I don't know. We don't know what exactly exactly what happened to her baby, but you know the pregnancy is a it's a difficult process, and unfortunately, many babies do not make it out. I mean, this is unfortunately it is result tragically it is a result of the fall. Death, miscarriages, and all that it, it's a result of the fallen man. And this is due to no fall of her own. So again, she had a miscarriage. I want to make that perfectly clear. I know I keep repeating it, but some people don't seem to understand it. Because there's been articles and tweets going at her saying that no, she she's lying. She's not only about having miscarriage. She actually had a she had an abortion, but she just did not she's a hypocrite. But she just don't want to admit she had an abortion. Like article after article, calling her a, a hypocrite. There's this one guy named Mark Basically, who posted an article to Yahoo News. The Yahoo News article is titled like this: "Just a Dugger details a life saving abortion." Emotional video, life saving abortion. And here's what this guy tweeted out so, hypocrite Jessica Duggar had an abortion procedure. This after coming to Tennessee to preach against the same thing in front of our legislator. And this is not the only one. Let's go to some other articles. This is from Jezebel. This is just the headlines right here for the um, articles. From Jessica Duggar Seawald had an abortion, even if she won't say the word. Showbiz uh, Daily the truth behind Jessica Duggar Seawald's abortion. Another article an Notoriously pro life Duggar family member Jessica Duggar reveals she had a miscarriage and life saving pr- abortion procedure in new video internet, re- internet response. Another article Healthcare for me, but not for thee. A Duggar. Had a miscarriage. And again, there's tweet after tweet calling her a hypocrite, saying that, well, she actually had an abortion, and all that nonsense. You know, calling her just this most disgusting things. Again, calling her a fake Christian for this because she supposedly had an abortion. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, wait, how. What are you talking about? You said she had a miscarriage, right? Yes, she did. Yes, yeah, she had a miscarriage. But where they call an abortion, and here's the most disgusting part, there's two things they call an abortion. They call a miscarriage abortion, an abortion because in some medical coding that conveniently only became public after Roe v. Wade came out, or after Roe v. Wade was overturned. They call they call that a spontaneous spontaneous abortion, and they call it the procedure, the DNC procedure, an abortion procedure. <laughs> the problem is, this is not the case. This is not the case. A DNC is not an abortion procedure. Why? Because it's used for other things other than in pregnancy situations. Again, it's it's it can be used for removing um, excess placenta after the mother gives birth to her baby and it can be used for um, It is use, it is used primarily only for women <laughs> that's what DNC procedure is it's only for women um it could be used uh, like if they <laughs> during their periods if they go have if a woman has a very complicated period for whatever reason uh, she can she can have a DNC procedure to help. Um, deal with whatever is happening. So women need um, that. So it's not, this is not an abortion procedure in any sort of way, according to any sort of definition. And, again, they're saying, they're kind of, now, this is pushed by the pro-abortion side to try to conflate abortion with a miscarriage. Again, they're trying to change the language around this, saying that, well, a miscarriage is just the same as an abortion, and that the pro-life side wants to punish women who have a miscarriage. You have that right. They believe that the pro-life movement wants to punish and put women in prison who have a miscarriage, and they want to ban any treatment for a miscarriage or something with what is called an ectopic pregnancy. But this is simply not case. This is simply not true. There's not a single law, pro-life law in the United States, not a single pro-life law in the United States, even in the most red of states like Alabama, for example, Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, all these pro-life laws. There's not a single line in those laws that say that a treatment for a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy, is illegal. They actually, in all these laws, they specifically say that that is an exception for some of these procedures because a DNC procedure can be used for an actual abortion as well. Not necessarily for the actual abortion procedure, but if a if a baby is, you know, poisoned instead of ripped apart, They go through a DNC procedure to to pull the baby out. So, again, there's not a single law in the United States that bans treatment for those things, and the utter idiocy around trying to conflate the language, conflate a miscarriage with an abortion, is just is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. They're not the same thing. Not, they're not even remotely the same thing. Not even remotely the same thing. A miscarriage is when a baby dies tragically in her in, a, in the mom, mother's womb. It's very tragic, but that a miscarriage is is, is not. It the mother is not not to be faulted at all. Is not the mother's fault at all, but with an abortion, abort an abortion, like an actual abortion, that is the deliberate killing of a baby. I mean, this is like you know the difference between dying natural causes or being killed or being murdered, like an adult person dying natural causes or being murdered. Two different things. Yes, they both die. But they die in both, they both die in different ways. <laughs> Can I make this any more clear? There's a difference between a miscarriage and abortion. Abortion is not a miscarriage, and a miscarriage is not an abortion. what Jessica Duggar had here, Jessica Duggar Seawald had here, <laughs> was a miscarriage. She did not have an abortion. And there's even some people saying that she's lying about having a miscarriage saying that well, she actually had an actual abortion but she's trying to hide it what reason was she had was she why was she go get an abortion and then say she had a miscarriage i mean for what possible motive for what possible motive Because she's one of the most pro life people <laughs> ever She's very, very pro-life, very pro-life. So explain to me how she's lying, and why did why do people assume that she's lying? Were they there? <laughs> were they, are these people who are saying this doctors who were there with her? No, they weren't. They're just making assumptions, and they're expecting people to believe those assumptions, and they're or expecting people to. Discount the actual person, like just his actual account of her own experience, and they're expected to believe the, instead of believe the account of some stranger who had never met her. I mean, seriously, people, how disgusting, how low can you go for this? <laughs> I mean, see, this is truly, truly gross stuff. Truly goes to gross stuff. And just a uh, Douglas Seabold actually responded <laughs> to all of this, and here's what she said. Women have DNCs for many reasons, not all all of which involve killing a living human being. The ultrasound revealed that I had miss mis, had a missed miscarriage. My baby's heart had stopped beating three weeks before I had a DNC. Between by the way, this was not my first DNC. It was my second. My first was two weeks postpartum, Ivy's birth. Two weeks postpartum, Ivy's birth for retained placenta. See, each person is created in the image of God, Genesis one twenty seven, and to purposely destroy a baby in the womb is an affront to God, to the God who created that life. Absolutely correct. There's a world of difference between someone dying and someone being killed. To equate one to the other and to and to a mother grieving the loss of her baby no less, is, is severely distasteful. There is a world of difference between a a, a mortician and a murderer. Even a child understands the difference between the two she's absolutely correct and I gotta say she's more gracious than I would be in this situation she's very very gracious very being very kind in her response to these people she's being very kind again the proportion side you know there's just there's some people who are saying that oh they're just dumb they're just ignorant and all that I don't believe that to be the case I don't think they're dumb I don't think they're ignorant I think they know the the difference between an abortion and a miscarriage. (laughs) I think they know that a DNC is not an abortion procedure. But they are playing dumb. They are playing dumb in in order to deceive women, which is worse. That is way worse than actually being ignorant. Than actually being dumb. I would rather them actually be dumb and ignorant about this than for them to actually... Pretending to be dumb about this, because th- this is evil. <laughs> because if they're playing dumb, they have reached an evil a, de- a depravity like no other. They're de- they're deliberately trying to deceive women, and to being afraid <laughs> of this, and de- deliberately <laughs> playing dumb in order to attack this woman, to take her down because she's pro life. That's the reason why they're going after her, because she is pro life and they hate pro lifers. They hate people who stand for the unborn. They, The, pro-life, the pro life, the pro choice, sorry, pro choice, the pro abortion side is evil. They are evil. They are demonic. They are wicked. There's no sugarcoating that anymore. There's nothing good and righteous at all. ...on the pro-abortion side. In fact, I think here here's how God would describe the pro-abortion side. Let's go to John 8.44. So John 8.44, um, Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, says this. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him <laughs> whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies and so does not that does that not describe the abortion side perfectly or what <laughs> they are the they are of their father the devil they are, they belong, they, they are Satan's product. The pro-abortion side is, a, was created by Satan. It is promoted by Satan. It is influenced by Satan. Again, it is demonic. It is evil. It is an evil, evil entity. There's nothing, again, there's nothing good or righteous by the pro-abortion side. Again, they advocate for the murder. ...of babies. The advocate for the murder of human babies. And this is the most... ...empathetic side, Big Eva? This is the most compassionate side, Christian? Are you serious? I'm serious. There's Christians out there who are saying... ...who who vote... ...for the pro-abortion side... ...because they believe it's the most... ...empathetic side... ...the most... ...compassionate side... And all that. Are you serious? You're actually looking at what these people are doing to this woman. Doing to Jesso Seedwald, And looking at what they advocate for. And you dare to say that they're the most empathetic and compassionate side? The most loving side? Of the spectrum? Of this debate? Are you kidding me? No. They're not. <laughs> they're, 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 there's nothing compassionate nothing empathetic, nothing loving about what the pro-abortion side advocates for. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing loving about it. Love comes from God. And if you're advocating for something that God hates, that's not love. That's not love whatsoever. No. The pro-abortion side does not care about anyone they do not care about women contrary to popular opinion, opinion they do not care about women whatsoever <laughs> they hate women they the thing is <laughs> the proportion proportion to their side is the sacrament so their pagan deceitful wicked religion it is a it is a sacrament to these folks. So there's not, a, there's, there's not a single, I mean, sorry, the pro-life side has no compassion, no love for any women. If they did, they would not be lying about about this. They would not be trying to deceive the women about what these pro-life laws are doing, because we know what they're going to do. because again, there's no, not a single pro-life law in the United States that bans a treatment of a miscarriage It bans the treatment of an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a single pro-life law that bans that. But what they're going to end up doing is that they're going to scare women into not going into the doctor to get the treatment that they need if they have a miscarriage, and their women are going to die. <laughs> women are going to die. And you know whose fault that's going to be? It's not going to be the pro-life um movie's fault because they don't advocate for that. It's going to be the pro choice of the pro abortion side's fault because they are deceiving and lying to women because they are of their father, the devil, who was the father of lies, who is a murderer. And they are just like them. So Christian, Christian, you, if you're openly supporting the side, if you're ordering, if you're openly supporting the candidate who is openly pro abortion, in order to seem, in order to seem more loving, then you need to do some serious heart examination. Supporting those who love abortion does not is not loving your neighbor, because that's a that's a big thing on the big Eva side now, <laughs> the big evangelical side right now, is we need to do things to love our neighbor. And for some, that includes supporting pro-abortion candidates. But if you're supporting someone, again, if you're supporting someone who is pro-abortion, you're not loving your neighbor. Because there's nothing loving, compassionate, or Christ-like, or godly about the pro-abortion side. Nothing whatsoever. Repent and turn to Christ. Period. Alrighty. That is all I have for that subject right here. So we're going to continue on with whether or not it's affirming to, um, it is loving to affirm sin. But first, if you're on Facebook, you got to go over to YouTube to check out the rest of the episode. So not only get the rest of the section regarding whether it's loving to affirm sin and also on on perseverance, my section on on perseverance and our series and order salutis. And remember, you can find this show on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it's in a podcast. Otherwise, I'll see you next time. This is the God of Freedom Show. All right, so let's continue on right here. Um, Going on to the next session. And so, um, here's a question is it loving to affirm someone's sin is it is is it the compassionate thing to do is is it the loving thing to do because there seems to be this idea within the church today that in order to appear loving that you have to affirm someone in their sin that you have to accept their sin and all that in order to not hurt their feelings to properly love them be compassionate be empathetic and all that I mean, of course, this idea is adopted from the world's idea of love. This idea that you had to accept every part of a person or to be loving to them. I mean, as re- and as a result of this, many pastors are now in the business of affirming sins like homosexuality, for example, and transgenderism. I mean, sins like even for some sins like racism. From one side or, or from another. In order they from um, they had to be affirmed by the sins in order to appear, in order to be, quote unquote, seeker seeker sensitive, because the world because the world is watching. <laughs> that whole mantra from the SBC <laughs> when they're trying to push CRT into churches and all that. They had this old mantra saying that the world is watching like we should care about the like the church should care about the what the world thinks of us so today according to a lot of present christians the gravest sin that you can commit is having a harsh tone it's having a harsh tone you know speaking the truth in love that it may seem harsh which is a great, which which is a violation of the greatest commandment, ever to be made. And is not to love God with your heart, soul, and mind, or to love your neighbor with your all, with your whole, or love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is this: Thou shalt be nice, and thou shalt not hurt feelings. That is the greatest commandment. According to many many Christians professing Christians today, the greatest command is not is thou shalt be nice and thou shalt not hurt feelings. So being nice according to many professing Christians means that you must compromise on the truth no matter what. Because telling the truth can hurt someone's feelings. It can hurt their feelings. And we cannot have any of that. We cannot hurt. We cannot hurt someone's feelings or any of that. So we had to be super, super nice, you know, just firm someone their sins in order to not to hurt their feelings. You know, bring them in into the church anyways without saying that they need to repent or anything. Just accept, them, like, just accept their sin, affirm the sin, just as they are, and just, you know, rub their shoulders, give them nice you know back massage and all that. <laughs> the problem is, though, this goes against the grain of Scripture and Jesus himself. I mean, throughout Scripture, we see over and over again God's prophets and God himself calling out sin and calling people to repentance. I mean, That's that the purpose of the prophets in the first place, is, them, is the purpose of calling out the sins of Israel and calling them to repent. And a lot of times, they don't repent, and they get God's judgment. But at the end, when they do repent, God redeems them. It it happens over and over again, and God himself has called out the sins of his his people as well. So, is God unloving? Is God non-compassionate? Is God, like... Super mean or whatever. I mean, Christ himself, again, who's God in flesh, while he was, he was and is always good, he's perfectly good, he's perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. He wasn't always nice, at least nice according to our standards. For example, let's go first, let's go to Matthew 12, starting from verse 34. In Matthew 12, verse 34, is Jesus condemning the Pharisees? <laughs> you brood of vipers, how can you be an evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of, of that which fills the heart. The good man, wait, sorry. Yeah, the good the good man brings out his good treasure, what what is good, and the evil man brings out his treasure, his evil treasure, <laughs> what is evil. So here's Jesus calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers, which is one of the worst things that you could have said to people back then. Now let's go to Luke 11, verse uh, 45. And this is personally one of my favorite moments by Jesus right here. So he, he's he's um, pronouncing woes on the Pharisees, which is basically like condemnation, you know, you know, condemning and condemning, you know, what the Pharisees have been doing and how they're acting, how they conduct themselves and all that. So he's saying, you know, woe to the Pharisees. And then he had the lawyers you know, respond to Jesus in verse, 40, verse forty-five, saying this. One, the lawyer said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, meaning when you say these woes to the Pharisees, you insult us too. And Jesus says, you know what he says? Instead of you know, he does he say, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't talking to you. I was just talking to the Pharisees. Does he say does he apologize to them? No, here's what he says. But he said, woe to your lawyers as well. For, he, for you, who weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the lawyers, you know, saying to Jesus, when you say that to the Pharisee, you, you assault us too. And then the Jesus comes back and saying, woe to you lawyers as well. Like... I mean, Jesus. I mean, Jesus was pretty harsh, and those moments are a lot of. He has a lot of those moments, especially in John, and it's, and it's fantastic. It simply is. And now, uh, finally, let's go to verse back to verse uh, John eight, verse forty four. You are your father, are your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar, and the father lies. So yeah, those are examples of Jesus being what we what we would say being mean, being harsh, being very. Unnice, unkind, unloving and all that I mean definitely the tone police if Jesus were walking the to earth today saying these things, um the tone police would definitely go after him saying, Well oh, Jesus, your your words are too harsh. is mean, that really loving to say things like that? Is it really loving to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers? Is it really loving to pronounce woes on the Pharisees and the lawyers? Is it really loving to call the Pharisees, um, you know, tell them you are of your father the devil? Is it really loving to say all of that? Is it really you know just compassionate? Which Jesus will reply, "Yes, yes, it is actually." So, but of course, you know, tone doesn't determine what is loving or not, because a lot of times, even even the most you know. Loving of statements, even the most truthful and loving of statements, can sound pretty harsh. Because the truth can hurt. Now, again, when speaking the truth, you need to do it in love. Don't do it in order to purposely condemn or purposely, you know, put someone down. But do do it in a correcting manner. In order, but also in a way that brings them into repentance. That's speaking the truth in love. Jesus, while he was harsh in lot in lot of language, he was always loving, always loving because he's he is love, he is God in flesh, so he is love, he is the creator of love, and he has always spoke the truth in love, even when he had a harsh tone. So, would you rather follow? examples of these kind of these squishy evangelicals not wanting to hurt people's feelings or should we follow the example of jesus who was compassionate he was definitely compassionate and loving but still spoke still spoke the truth even when it was harsh as christians we should go with the latter because we cannot outlove god as ali stuckey lo- loves to stay and she is absolutely correct you cannot outlove God. You cannot out-compassion God. You simply can't. God created love. He created love, and we cannot out-love Him. We cannot love people more than Him. It's simply, we simply cannot do that. In spite popular opinion, Jesus did not come to affirm you in your sins. He did not come to you to say, oh, you're, you're perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change or whatsoever. No, he came to, he didn't come to frame you in your sins. He came to save you from, from your sins. He came to save you from, from your sins. So instead of Jesus saying, you don't have to change, you're just perfect just the way you are. Instead, he actually says, you are a sinner. And you must repent of your sins. So repent of your sins and turn to me. That's what he says. Repent or you repent you you perish. That's the words of Jesus right there. And that's what we came to do to save people from their sins. And here's this call to people. people. Either, Either you repent of your sins or you perish because all must repent or perish so i encourage y'all i encourage any unbeliever or listen to this repent your sins and believe in the gospel which says this that you are indeed a sinner you're a wicked depraved sinner deserving god's wrath but god made a way to the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ a death where he was beaten he was whipped he was flogged his skin torn apart he was nailed to a cross took on the full wrath of God in order. And then he rose on the third day from the dead in order so that those who repent of their sins and turn to him, they will be saved. So I plead to you, repent your sins, repent and turn to Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Alrighty. So that's all I have for that section right there. So now let's move on into Perseverance in our series on the Ordo Salutis. All right, so welcome to part eight of our series on the Ordo Salutis. So to recap kind of where we have been over the past, you know, few uh, over the past episodes, you know, regarding this series and everything, we are almost at the end. And this is the second, the second to last uh, part of the series. So to recap, we um, we first started actually with kind of explaining what the gospel gospel is, you know, how people are saved in the first place, and then we're moving on on into kind of the aspects of the order of Salutis, starting with election of how God chooses who is going to save before the foundation of the earth. And then predestines us to adoption. When they get, Then we were talking about calling, which is the gospel call. You know, God calling us through preachers, through pastors, through the sharing of the gospel, to repentance and surrender. And then we talk about regeneration, which is the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. Turn our hearts from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, allowing us, giving us the ability to respond to the gospel call. In, or, in order for us to repent and turn to Christ, and when we do that, we are converted from a sinner, from a uh, from an unbeliever into a believer, from a unregenerate person to a regenerate person. So, kind of combining regeneration with a conversion, that is what we call being born again, necessarily, um, kind of. And then uh, we have uh, justification, which is God. Um, when we, when we repent and are converted god declares us righteous before before him he justifies us before before him so we are justified and made righteous before the sight of god so that way, that is how we were able to enter into heaven in the first place and then we talk about adoption how god god the father adopts us as his children when we turn, when, when when we are redeemed through Christ, and then last week we talked about sanctification, which is kind of the, the the kind of progressive version or the progressive um, step of salvation, of us growing more and more in the faith, growing closer to God, you know, us bearing more and more more fruit in our walk with Christ, and all that. And so last week, I left off with a question. And the question was this. Is sanctification means obeying God's commandments? You know, obeying his commandments in order to actually grow closer to him, you know, bear more fruit? Um, does this mean that if we disobey him, if we sin, that we lose our salvation? So this question has really brought much unneeded fear and anxiety to many Christians, unfortunately. Many Christians are like become very afraid and they mess up if they sin even once they have just lost their salvation it's like there's hardly any assurance of salvation anymore so but let me encourage you let me encourage you right here even though we are called to obedience this does not mean that we can lose our our salvation if we mess up we can lose it We cannot, so obedience is not us, does not cause us to stay saved, nor does it cause us to be saved in the first place. Obedience is just what we are called to do. It is the evidence of our salvation. It is the evidence, it is the fruit of the Spirit. But, if we, like, disobey God, if we sin, which we will do, even as Christians, we will definitely sin, we will definitely disobey God. This does not mean that we lose our salvation. It simply doesn't. In fact, if you're truly saved, if you're truly justified, if you're truly adopted, you will not lose your salvation. You're secured by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. For all eternity, you're secured by the Holy Spirit. That's what scripture teaches. So in order to kind of hash this out a little bit, we're going to be going... The passage we're going to be going through is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. So we're actually going to read, um, start from verse 22 to kind of get some context of what's happening here. So again, John chapter 10, starting from verse uh, 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I, that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And this is where we start right here. My, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my, snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able, and no, sorry, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So that's where we're we'll going to be going through, again, verses 27 to 30. So again, starting with verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So when it comes to shepherding, when it comes to, you know, especially shepherding sheep, sheep can uh, be pretty dumb. They actually, they actually, sheep are actually very dumb. They do dumb stuff, you know, they go to places where they shouldn't be, they wander off very easily, like, I don't know, they're they're just very dumb animals in a lot of ways. But when they hear the sound of the shepherd's voice, because the sheep have this gift that they're able to recognize the voice of their shepherd, and so when they hear the voice, they immediately go to him, go to the shepherd, and start following him and obeying you know whatever he tells them. So the same thing applies to us and Christ. Because we ourselves can be pretty dumb. We ourselves can go to places where we shouldn't be, our head can go to places where we shouldn't where it shouldn't go. We can wander off pretty easily. But Christ keeps us alive because he is the true shepherd. Um, that is uh what Psalm twenty-three is all about. Psalm Twenty Three. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me, be- He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You're w- for You're with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and lovely kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the Lord, that's Jesus, He is our shepherd, and He guides us. And so, another another word we can use: so we are we are sheep, and He is a shepherd. And another word we can use for sheep in this passage, to kind of get some more kind of context of what Jesus is talking about, is the word elect. So when Jesus refers to a sheep, he is not he does not merely mean believers, like just the people who at that at that moment are believing. He's also talking about those. He's also talking about his elect overall, those. Who were chosen before the foundation of the world? Those who were predestined, regardless of whether at that point they believed or not. Yet, I mean, the 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 parable of the lost sheep is an example of this. That we are those who are unbelieving, unbelievers. The, the you know, all of us were lost sheep. All who are believers now, believers now, <laughs> are, were lost sheep. We were still sheep, but we are lost. We were away from the flock, but Jesus comes and find us. He seeks after us and brings us to his flock. And that's what happens. So regardless to whether or not we are a believer, if you're of the elect, you're our sheep, whether or not you are a believer at that point or not. And scripture is very clear. About the idea of predestination and, you know, the do- doctrine of election overall. So let's first go to Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 28. And we know that God's, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who call who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined he also called. And these whom he called he also justified. And these whom he justified he also glorified. Next, let us go to Ephesians chapter one, starting from verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, be, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to Himself according to the kind attention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed upon us in the, on us in the Beloved. So those who are of the elect, when they hear Christ calling them, and through the gener- work of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, they answer the call and follow Him. And, and in the Scripture is clear that only the elect can answer the call of Christ. Matthew twenty two verse fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. So many can many you can call many. The pastors can, you know, share the gospel with many people, calling all of them to repentance. That's what it means right here. The many call to repentance, but very but few are chosen to be brought to repentance. So that is the doctrine of election, which we already covered at the beginning of the series, which is very crucial to this idea of perseverance, the idea of being eternally secured. Because that's what perseverance is talking about. It's talking about whether or not you persevere in your faith through it all. Whether you stay in the faith. Whether you stay with your. Whether you keep your salvation through trials and all that. So now let's move on into verse twenty-eight, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So those who answer the call and repent of their sins will receive eternal life from, from from Christ. For Christ calls us to re, either repent or perish. That's Luke uh 13:3. Luke 13:3 I tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. So either either you repent, or all must repent, or perish. That that's command from Christ. So those and those who repent, eternal Christ, they live. They receive eternal life. So now let's go to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life john 11 25 to 26. jesus and this is when uh lazarus is dead and jesus is at a temple with martha and all that he's about to raise him from the dead and jesus says this said uh, says to martha i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? And then in John uh, 14, 6, Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." So through Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Christ grants you the gift of the eternal life. And no no one can snatch him out of out of your hand. Out of his hand, sorry. No one can snatch us out of his hand. In other words, he would never lose any of us sheep. Meaning, we cannot lose our salvation. That's Romans 8. 8, starting verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so now we move on to verse uh, 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Out of the Father's hand. And so, the Father is the one who... Who has given us to Christ. He is the one who draws us and gives us and redeems us through Christ. He is the one who predestines us and chooses us before the vanishing of the world. He is the one who adopts us as children of God. So just as no one can go to the Father but the Christ, likewise, no one can go to the Christ unless the Father chose you and draws you to him. That's John 6.44. No, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i raise him up on the last day and likewise also and no no one or nothing can snatch us out of the father's hand when he was when he's redeeming us when he's predestined us chose us and everything no one can snatch it no one can make us unchosen no, nothing can make us unchosen or unpredestined. No one can um, snatch, a, snatch us out of his hand. Again, we'll repeat. Going back to Romans 8. 38 again. For I give that neither death nor alive nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, let, I mean, just look at that. Death, life, angels principalities as also rulers um nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other credit thing nothing can separate us from the love of christ nothing can separate us from from christ no one can snatch us out of his hand and then in verse 30 of jesus says i and the father are one and as him asserting his deity by saying that he and the Father are one. And none of this will be possible if this now were the case. If Jesus was not God. If Jesus did not have a divine nature. If he was just a man. None of this will be possible. Salvation would not be possible. And we will still be dead in our sins. Christianity rests on the deity of Christ. Which scripture is very clear about. Scripture is very clear that God, that Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, that's talking about Jesus. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And going down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, Jesus... Is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God, God the God the Son, the Messiah, and, and all that, the Christ. And so if He was not he, if He was not God in flesh, none of this would be possible. But rest assured that Jesus is indeed God made flesh. So if you are truly saved and you're truly redeemed by the Father through Christ. If we are truly saved and all that, we would never lose our salvation. And he would never lose us. This should bring us great comfort. (laughs) Great comfort. It should bring us great comfort. Because now we realize that salvation is not relying on us in any sort of way. Just as we cannot do anything to be saved, likewise, we cannot do anything to stop being saved. Because there's nothing we contribute to our salvation in the first place. Nothing. I mean, God does the work. All the work of us being saved. But then this question, when this debate comes up, this question kind of always comes up saying, you know, but can you freely give up your salvation? Can you just walk away and all that? Because I'm sure we've all seen... You know, people who seem to be genuine believers, who seem to be, who seem to be on fire for Christ and all that just, just ends up walking away, walking away from the faith, you know, being, becomes an atheist and all that, becoming, becomes anti Christian, anti God and all that. So because they walked away, did they lose their salvation? So does that mean it is possible to lose salvation if you just walk away from, from it? Well, thankfully, God has through His Word answers this question in First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not. They were not really of us, for they if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be it would be shown that they were not. They were all not of us. They all are not of us. So those who walk away, those who seem to be genuine Christians, but just walk away, who have become apostate, they were never really of us. They were never truly saved. Because if you're truly, especially if you're if you a believer in Reformed theology, if someone's truly saved, like truly saved, I mean, there's no, I mean, God is not going to, there's no, doesn't the scripture that says God makes you unelect? Like, he thought you say, Oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I made a mistake by choosing him. Let's toss him out. God doesn't do that. If you're truly saved, then you are of the elect, and God will never lose you. <laughs> so that means if you walk away from the faith, like completely, not just if you, you know, go through a period of like, you know, kind of just a period of sin, kind of just a dry season, if you will, you know, not getting to word, not praying or whatever. I mean, definitely you do some heart examination, do some, you know, examination of the spirit and all that. But I mean, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who, you know, seem to like really walk away completely, who stop believing, who becomes an atheist and all that. Those are the folks who were never really of us, who never really genuinely believed in the first place. So, so that's shirt. If you find yourself kind of, you know, if you find yourself worried that you might have, you know, might have been saved in the first place because you went through a, se- like a dry season or something, you know, go to God with that. Go to God in prayer and repentance and all that. And let me encourage you to, if you are worried about that, if you're worried that, you know, you know, what about loss of salvation? You know, what if. I was never really saved. You know, I you know, I believe in him, I believe in Christ, I believe in the gospel, but I'm scared, you know, that I, I never I was never truly saved because I made I went through the season and all that. Let me encourage you. You likely are saved. Because no truly saved person, like unregenerate person apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, would would be worried about that. No no true Genuine person, genuine believer will actually be worried about that. Or no, sorry, no, um, no, uh, truly, uh, no, no unbeliever will be worried about that, I should say. So, it's a mean card. same thing with the whole thing about, you know, blasphemy because the Holy Spirit is unforgivable unfor- unfor- sin. So if you're worried about that, because that's a scary concept of us blaspheming the Holy Spirit and that being the unpardonable sin, that can scare a lot of folks. And, and there's a lot of Christians who are scared that, you know, what if we committed? I've definitely had you know, kind of moments where did I do that before? <laughs> but let me encourage you again, just like with the salvation issue, with this um issue as well, if you're worried about that, be encouraged that you likely didn't. Because, again, tr- a true believer, a true, would not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they were regenerated, generated by the Holy Spirit. Because those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like truly blaspheme the Holy Spirit, are not believers in the first place. So, And they are not worried about that. So, rest assured, Christian you not, you don't, you can rest assured that you, you know, you definitely check your spirit, check your heart, and make sure, examine your heart, make sure you are in the faith. But if you find yourself that you are, then be assured. Be secure in your salvation because you are secured in your salvation. But you find yourself, and you find yourself that, wait, you, you look at the evidence saying, oh, wait, I'm not in the faith. You, you know, just, you examine your heart then repent. Just simply repent your sins and turn to Christ. And guess what? You are already at a good place where you recognize, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm not truly saved. <laughs> I've, I never truly repented. You're already at a good place because the Holy Spirit is truly working on your heart, even at that point. So rest assured of that. Again, so be assured if you are saved, <laughs> you will, you will stay saved. And that's that's some, you know, a great, a great, you know, comfort right there. And it's really, you know, you know, takes off any anxiety we have, any fears, and unnecessary fears and all that. And through sanctification, your perseverance given by him, he will continue to work within us, growing us in the faith day by day by day until we are perfected until the salvation is perfected that is uh philippians chapter one verse six philippians chapter one verse six for i am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will will perfect it until the day of of christ jesus so what I mean by perfected, I mean perfected, that he will make us do sanctification, Eventually, we will become perfect. we will become perfectly holy and perfectly righteous before even not not just before God, but but in our very nature. And this is what we call glorification, which is what we would be discussing next time around. Alright. So now, so now let's continue on in our reading through the book of Acts. So we are in Acts chapter 17. It's after the end, the event where you know Paul was Paul and Silas were jailed put in jail, but through, through the preaching of Paul, um, a lot of prisoners were converted. The jailer was converted, and the jailer and his all his family were converted as well into Christianity. You know, and then at the end we see um, Paul and them depart, and they're going to Thessalonica. So this is where we start in verse uh, one of chapter seventeen. Now, when they had traveled, when they had traveled through Am- Amphipolis in a, a, a Polynea, they came to Thessalonica, where there had there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining, giving evidence that. The Christ has suffered, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and taken along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, Jason, and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, "These men who have upset the world have also come. Have come here also." And Jason was has welcomed them, and they all all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and, and the city authorities. Who heard these things, when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So this is in Thessalonica, you know, like always when Paul writes a place, he always goes to the synagogues because again, Jesus came for the Jew first and then the Greek. So Paul always goes to the synagogue to try to, you know, share the gospel with them, try to reason with them, saying that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the Christ who had to die for our sins and was risen on the third day. And then some of them, you know, did, some, a lot of the Jews, some of the Jews did, um, repent and turn to Christ and began, um, going along with Paul and Silas. But of course, a lot of the other Jews <laughs> were not so convinced and, you know, of course, before the mob, before the, before the mob against Paul and all of them, but they couldn't find him, of course. So, uh. It's very interesting. This is in Thessalonica, which is a very interesting place because if you go through the book of Thessalonians, like we discussed last time, if you go—I mean, the epistles of this of the Thessalonica of Thessalonians and all that—it was very interesting about that. Is that this church, particularly right here, that the church has planted here? Paul never actually rebukes or crushes them. He actually continues to edify them and encourage them in his letters to them which is a very big contrast to compare it to Galatians. I'm actually reading through Galatians. I'm studying through Galatians right now. Man, like, Paul was harsh on them. Paul was, like, really harsh on them, like, even more so than the Corinthians. Like, he, like, like, immediately went after what was their problem. And so, but, oh, the Thessalonians, you know, they, whenever rebuked or corrected. They just were encouraged. They were edified. Which is a. a it was probably a good. Breath of fresh air. To Paul when he was writing those letters. And so next time around. We'll be going into. Where Paul is in Berea. you know, continuing. Uh, share the gospel with the Jews. And Gentiles and all that. So we'll get into that next time around. All right. So to kind of end off. A little bit of a high note. Uh, we're gonna, actually, I'm gonna play video. This is, uh, from the Shepherds Conference, I believe. I believe it's from last year. From last year's Shepherds Conference, where, this is Pastor Vodibachum, Dr. Vodibachum, um, in one of his sermons. And at the end of his sermon, he, um, began preaching the gospel. Just laying out the gospel. Um, just... And he does it very well. He articulates the gospel very well. And so, this is where I'm going to end it off. So, I'll be back here next time with all the latest. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is The God of Freedom Show.
1: When people say, no, our our problem is this, our problem is that, we say, no, 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 our problem is that God created the world And God created man, and he put man in the garden to keep the garden. And he gave the man a command. And he held that man to perfect, perpetual obedience to that command. And he promised him life if he kept it, and death if he didn't. And he didn't keep it. He ate And because he ate, because of that one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And everyone born from that man through ordinary generation inherited that man's sin nature. And because of that sin nature, sins proceed from it. And our world is broken because of that sin. And we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And we know that he's holy, and we know that he's righteous, and we crave justice. But the problem is that if God gives us justice, we all die. And so that God, in his goodness and in his mercy sent forth his son, who was not born of ordinary generation, but was born of a virgin. Yes, the virgin birth matters. Why? Because if he's born of ordinary generation, he's born in sin. But because he's not born of ordinary generation, he's not born in sin. He's clean of sin. His record is clean. And he keeps his record clean. And he obeys God's law. And because he's fully God and fully man, He obeys the law of God on our behalf in his active obedience. And then in his passive obedience, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. All we like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way, but God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. And God imputes our sinfulness to him. And he nails our sinfulness to the tree. And Christ dies and raises again on the third day for our justification. And there's another imputation. The righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to us so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus Christ so that all those who come to Christ may enter in, so that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved, but not only saved, but sanctified. Because he's the firstborn of many brethren. We're justified and we're adopted into the family of God. And we're sanctified. And as his children, we begin to bear the family resemblance. And we're further sanctified throughout this life by the very same gospel that saves us. Until one day when it's all said and done, We're not just saved from the penalty of sin. We're not just saved from the power of sin, but one day we're glorified and saved from the very presence of sin. That's the gospel that we preach. That's the gospel that we need. And that's the gospel that's more than enough.
0: If you enjoy this episode of the God of Frame Show, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Remember, you can find the show on our podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anchor.
1: Thank you for listening and watching. And as always, all glory to be to God.